Now you should listen to this because this concerns you. This is about an uh, evil genius in love. Evil genius mind. <laughs> if you want any chance to recoup your money and get anything out of that podcast, do exactly as I say. No, you're an evil genius is what you are. If this works, you're, you're some kind of a, a evil genius. Honest to God. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Evil Genius Chronicles. I am your little podcast buddy, Dave Slusher. Welcome to this show. This show is being recorded for January 5th, 2024. 24. <laughs> I got it right. First try. First of business. The show is not kid safe, not work safe, not New Year's safe. Uh, it is Creative Commons licensed non-commercial attribution 4.0 unported. The music is by the late great band, the General Readers. They're at generalreaders.com. Bandwidth is via Cashfly under the kind umbrella of Backbeat Media. I don't speak for my day job because I'm retired, so suck it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Speaking of the General Readers, um, I had played last day at the office to uh, commemorate my retirement last month. And as I was looking up stuff, I realized they put out an album in 2017 that went completely under my radar. Even though I mentioned generalreaders.com basically in the intro of every show for you know the last 15 years, I haven't been to the site in a long time. And they put out an album. I was like, what the, what the hell? So we're going to play one of the songs right now. Their album is called You're Soaking In It, which uh, exposes them for being very similar in age to me. If that's one of their cultural touchstones. Paul Molive, you're soaking in it. I don't know why you ever soak any like any fingernail in anything, but apparently that was a big deal back in 1974. So anyway, here we go. From the album You're Soaking In It, this is the leadoff track Goldmine by the General Readers. <laughs>
All right, that was The Gentle Readers from the album You're Soaking In It with Goldmine. And uh, boy, do I like that. It sounds like High Honey, and apparently the songs were written very shortly after the High Honey sessions and uh, not recorded for about 10 more years after that and then not released for like seven more years after that. But at least it came out. Thank you very much. All right, the big news that is happening around here. A few big things happened. I intended to record a show between Christmas and New Year's, but just life was too much. We had to drive across the state, which ate somewhere between one and a half and two days. You know, we had just had lots of things happening and the holidays themselves, of course. But somewhere in that time period, we managed to find time to adopt a third dog. And so we have actually looked at multiple kind of older rescue dogs, like the like an old dog it's so much easier to adopt out a puppy than it is to adopt out a very old dog and especially a sickly old dog. And that's uh, what this dog is. There was a post up there on the, the grand strand humane society's page saying basically old dog needs boring home, which <laughs> I'm going to say perked up our interest. Huh? Huh? Well, we have a, we have a boring home. How about that? And the situation is that this dog, I guess was brought in in early November off the streets, uh, Super skinny, heartworms, you know, all the stuff, uh, you know, eating out of trash cans. And they were not confident he was going to survive. Um, they nursed him back to health. The vet, like the resident vet for the Humane Society, actually has been fostering him and loves this dog and would have preferred to keep this dog forever, except he's very tired. You know, he doesn't have a lot of energy, except for chasing cats. So that's when he can reach down. And find a reserve of, you know, you can find a uh, the reserve tank, and that's to chase cats, which she, of course, being a Humane Society vet, has a number of cats. So she needed to find a new home for this guy. When we adopted it, boy, she did she cry a lot. <laughs> and I've been sending her pictures periodically. So we've got this guy. He's uh, better than feral, but not way better than feral. I mean, he, he hard life kick around dog. We think he's old, although he could be not that old, but because of the life he's led, it just makes him seem old. I mean, he's, he's had it tough. So we've got this guy and, uh, we all love him. He's very sweet. I mean, he does a lot of stuff like his name's Nikoa. Um, obviously they named him at the humane society cause he came in off the animal control thing. He didn't have an owner that had named him. He was apparently just, you know, if he ever had a home, he hasn't had one for some time. He loves to just be where you are. So if you're in the kitchen doing something, it, we have to, we have learned to be a little more deliberate in our motions because you can't just turn, you can't just start walking somewhere without looking because he might be standing right there at your hip. And so you, everyone in this household has tripped over this dog at least once in the couple of days we've had him. The, the worst part is that although we have a dog door, and we have one dog that has no issues with it and one dog that uses it occasionally has issues with it. The neurotic dog we already had. This guy, we're not sure if he's deaf. He doesn't seem to have great eyesight and he just hasn't ever used the dog door. We can push him through it, but he won't voluntarily go through it. And he's been a feral-ish type dog for some time, which means peeing in the house. So we're trying to get him, like you have to let him out pretty frequently and, uh, you know, every time he wakes up and, you know, so, so trying to keep the pee off the floor is 
a full-time effort. <laughs> like if I didn't, if I wasn't already retired, I could not do my job and deal with this dog at the same time. It's at this stage, I'm hoping it gets easier, but at this stage, he in fact is a full-time job. Right now I'm doing this show and I'm hoping he's still asleep. If he wakes up from his nap that he was sawing logs in 15 minutes ago, if he wakes up from that nap, he's going to pee somewhere. And so I'm hoping this may be a shortest show or there may be a pause in the middle of this show because it's a mental weight, which is anytime I don't see the dog for a few minutes, I'm like, is that dog peeing somewhere? You know, I've got to be around him at all times. And when I'm not, it's, uh, you know, I can't even bring him up here unless I carry him all the way up the stairs because he can't climb stairs. Uh, He can't climb that many stairs. He would probably slide back down and break his neck if if he tried. And I don't feel like toting him (laughs) fireman carry all the way up. The, the flight of stairs and I'm not moving my podcast production stuff downstairs. So this is the situation. It's, it's, it's dicey. <laughs> I just have cleaned up so much pee. I just don't want to clean up any more pee, but boy, what do we, it is everybody in this house. love this dog. He's, you know, he's just, he's just a dude, right? He, he frequently will wander up to you. He'll just stop. And kind of look in the middle distance and just stand there. And when I say stand there, I mean not moving at all, head not moving, eyes not darting around, just standing there, looking at nothing in particular, like a thousand yard stare in the middle distance. And he might be that for anywhere between one and five minutes. It's the oddest thing. It's like a dog statue. It's like a stuffed dog of a living dog. It's uh, quite amazing. So that's, that has consumed what did we got him on Saturday? Today's Wednesday as I record this. It's consumed so much of my time. And uh, we have learned, we learned the hard way. You got to create him at night um, or else he'll get up and pee in the night, you know, just pee wherever he feels like it in the middle of the night. So we got to create him. He was already crate trained. That was not like the vet had crate trained him. That was not a big problem. He has no particular problem getting in the crate, but I feel bad um, putting him, getting him out of the crate. Then I have to kind of put him back in while my wife is getting ready for work and I'm walking the other dogs. Uh, If it wasn't so cold, I could put him in the backyard, but it's like 30 degrees out. So I don't want to do that. And and I don't want him just running around the house unsupervised. So he has to get up from crate, pees, has has breakfast, goes back in the crate. (laughs) And I really felt bad about putting him back in a crate a third time while I take the kid to school. So today we just threw that dog in the car (laughs) Took him with us, rode him to school, rode him back to school, rode him back home from school, and uh, seemed to go all right. That might be the new normal. That might, at least until we get a little more acclimated to the house, that might be just how we do life. <laughs> ride to school every single day. And he's also a riding dog. The other two dogs don't like to ride in the car, and this guy likes to ride in the car. So I kind of miss having a riding dog. Our very first dog we ever had used to ride with me everywhere. That's the dog that would get in my pickup truck in Louisiana and just ride around with me wherever. If I was going somewhere, we just ride. And <laughs> it was, I, I kind of miss having a dog like that. So maybe this guy will be my riding dog. We'll see. Well, one of the things we did over the holidays, we watched all of Slow Horses season three. And I must say, this is the very, very rare show where uh, a three season show, every season I think is stronger than the season in front of it. Um, I, I just can't think of any like that. You know, there are shows, you know, like cheers, the second season and beyond of cheers, you know, it took a little while to warm up. It's common for shows to take a little while to find their footing, but 
to have a six episode season, have three of them that just keep getting better and better is in my mind, uh, an oddity. And, and I do like that there, there's an upside and a downside is that characters will just die. <laughs> And and characters you get attached to will die. One of the good, the bad thing is, uh, you know, you've got a character you like this character now they're off the show. The upside is, boy, there's a lot of stakes. Like every one of these characters is kind of you know always on the chopping block, and there were some surprising deaths in uh, the season three. And it has, um, I think, in the best way. One of the things I liked best about the Sopranos, and Sopranos is absolutely a show with two great seasons. Two mediocre seasons, and I think two awful seasons. People revere The Sopranos, but once uh, the actress that played his mother died, uh, I think the show floundered and was never as good again. Even like Steve Buscemi, as much as I like him, like his season wasn't great, and they just kept getting worse. And honestly, that last season, I really, I feel like I'm alone on this. I think that last season of The Sopranos was kind of terrible. It was, I didn't. What it was kind of like. it was one of those shows that it was like ER, but it got canceled. I uh, w- was glad that I no longer had to watch this because <laughs> I had to watch it out of sympathy because like left to my own devices, I would have dropped that show uh, probably like season at the end of the season four. I probably would have never watched it again if I was the sole TV watching decision maker. But slow horses, man. The, but the thing the Sopranos did uh, I, that I really liked was between seasons, you would start episode one of a new season and people lived with new people you've never seen before. Like uh, there was one season, Polly Walnuts is like living with a girl who has a son and he's like talking to the son and, you know, like putting the son to bed. There was no explanation. It was just lives continued forward. And I like that a lot about that. And I like that about Slow Horses. You come into season two, there are people, the characters you've never seen before that have been assigned to this unit of shame or doing things for which one should have some shame. And they just come and go. And uh, I like that a lot. On the Evil Genius Discord, that was the thing Paul Fisher said, is that to him, that's the worst part of the show, is that you never know if investing in a character is going to be rewarded or not over time. But I I do like a little bit of the realism of that. And I do like the um, the high stakes of that, that you just can't take anything for granted, right? Everybody is on the table. I suppose probably Jackson Lamb is not, and maybe... Cartwright is not, but it kind of feels like everybody else could be. So that's, uh, I like that a lot. We watched the crown. Um, or I should say the TV was watched in, in this house with the crown. I was in the room for some of it. I think it fucking sucked. I think that last season was so boring. Uh, as much as I like Dominic West, I, I think he was terrible as Prince Charles. And also I don't give a shit about the Windsor family. So I, I don't care. We have, but we have started watching Endeavor, which apparently I've just missed this. I've, I don't know that I'd ever even heard of it. I had heard of Inspector Morse, never watched an episode of it. Uh, I don't believe I've ever even heard of this, which it has the same relationship to Inspector Morse as Young Wallander does to Wallander, right? It's the grizzled detective at the beginning of their career. And, uh, we're quite enjoying it. I quite like the actor, um, that does it because of these four episode seasons. I think, are we into season three? I mean, it feels like we haven't been watching it very long and we're already, you know, uh, about a third of the way through the entire series. So um, we're enjoying that one. Now, I will say this will get me some this might get me some blowback. I think Bruce Lerner always gets mad at me when I talk about this stuff. I am reading the Cory Doctorow novel Lost Cause. 
theoretically. I started reading it over uh, the holidays. I honestly believe that this is probably the point where I jump off the train. I'm actually interested in the subject matter. I've heard him talking about it. I thought, oh, this sounds great. This post-MMT, post-Green New Deal book. And then I'm about 11% into it. I just don't know. I have no enthusiasm for picking it back up. It's like, I don't know if I'm going to. I don't know if I'm going to give it a shot. This is the, the 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 ladies on the Reading Glasses podcast. Basically, I always say that you should drop a book. That life is too short to read books that you're not enjoying. And I think this is probably that circumstance. It's um, it's just so. I mean, a lot of people seem to like the previous book, the Red Team Blues, that Martin Hench novel. And I didn't particularly like that. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. And I will say that, like, the beginning of this, uh, of The Lost Cause, I kind of really actually hate it. And it's just so, I mean, we've got enough data now. Like, the way Corey introduces characters, there's going to be a protagonist. There's going to be, very shortly in, there's going to be a meet-cute with somebody. Uh, They're always going to be defined by these, uh, like, they're... Quotidian competent detail. That's always how you introduce a character. Like it, this book feels to me like you took every, all the previous books, ran them through a large language model, and said, "Now write me another one just like that <laughs> on this sub on this topic." And that I I don't know. I I, I just I have no enthusiasm for this. Um, I will say so. I'm going to I'm going to try something new with the Descript app. That I'm going to have some spoilers for Red Team Blues. And I'm going to use the synthetic voice to put in exactly how long to skip. If you want to miss the spoilers, <laughs> I'm going to go back later after I do it and tell you exactly how long I talked about it with the little robot. It should, well, you will see how much it sounds like me. It should not be like, skip forward 27 seconds. <laughs> it shouldn't be like that. It should ideally be imperceptible that it's not me. But anyway, I'm going to talk about the details of Red Team Blues. So if you don't want to be spoiled on that, skip ahead one minute and 42 seconds. So I read this book, and I think it suffered greatly in comparison to the fact that I had been reading Bosch books, which are cracking yarns with cracking mysteries that really reward you trying to figure the stuff out. And so when I read Red Team Blues, I got through and I'm like, oh, who really did this? Who, uh, you know, who killed the guy? Did his wife do it? Was it something? What happened? You know, what happened here? Uh, where's all the stuff? Where's the missing stuff? And then there's like, you expect this like forking, branching path. And it's not. It is an absolute straight line <laughs> down the center. Everything is exactly as it looked exactly at the beginning. You get to basically two thirds of the book. And then he spends the last third of the book, hiding from the bad guys until they get caught, the end. Like, what the fuck did I just read? And people seem to like it, and I don't know why. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was, had all the same problems that I'm talking about with Lost Cause, where at this point, the style, just I just find the style, stylistic ticks. They did not bother me when I read Down and Out and the Magic Kingdom or Eastern Standard Tribe, but now, like this many books in, they really uh, kind of grate on me. And I just don't, I don't know, man. But the honestly, I just thought the plot of the book was so uninteresting. By the time it was done, I thought, this is, why did I spend my time with this? This was a nothing burger. So anyway, I, that was my feeling about that. Um, 
So, you know, I, I nothing against the guy. The guy is doing uh, a great job of doing what he's doing and uh, doing it how he's doing it. And he created a whole approach to writing, which was not a viable path before he made it a viable path. So I give him every bit of credit for all of that stuff. At this point, I will read his nonfiction, but I don't know that I have any enthusiasm for reading any more narrative fiction from him anytime soon. There's just too much stuff I have a greater enthusiasm for in the world. So we will see. I may just drop this book at 11% and never come back. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Anybody who's reading it, if you're reading it and you had this experience pushed through and it got better, let me know. Uh, D- Dave at evilgeniuschronicles.org. That's where we're at right there. All right. I'm going to both, I think, pause this and also <laughs> take a sip of this fine coffee. Mm. But also pause it and go downstairs and make sure a dog is still asleep and not painting the house with urine. One more sip of this fine. Mm. Everything seemed to calm down there. Two of the three dogs are knocked out. One of them is running around the yard barking, but uh, I think we're all right. I think I've got another 20 to 25 minutes where I can. It's not that I can't do the show. It's that I can't feel comfortable doing the show. That's That's really a different thing, which is this whole feeling in my chest like I should be doing something. I should be down there. I'm worried about this. I guess this would be a great place for a uh, some form of uh, inside the house camera pointing at this dog where this dog is asleep. Maybe I should set something like that up. Just get a really cheap camera and just open it on a different screen. And when I see the dog stir, I go running downstairs. That's actually a great idea. Maybe that will change, change my life. Or a uh, motion sensor. I do actually have a motion sensor I could put down there. Just tell me every and point it directly at that dog's bed, uh, such that it picks up nothing else. And then uh, I don't know. I'm just I'm just uh, spitballing with myself about shit that doesn't matter to anybody else. This is a wildly random observation, but it is one that has occurred to me. I am old enough that I remember Tupperware parties. I remember when that was a thing, like somebody's mom, you know, trying to pick up a little extra money, um, particularly, let's say the Avon lady market has been saturated and there's, you know, more Avon ladies than uh, demand, particularly, let's say if you live in small towns in the Midwest, let's say Nebraska or Kansas, a hypothetical state such as one of those, um, you know, Tupperware was another thing. And you would have the Tupperware parties, right, where you would get some samples and then you would bring your friends over and serve them co- coffee cake and you'd sit around and smoke cigarettes and you'd show them the stuff. And then you'd take an order for them and, you know, and then you'd get some skim. And it it was if I I don't know this for a fact, but I feel like it was organized kind of like a multi-level marketing thing is I think you have your Tupperware distributorship from somebody else and you have to kick to them and they have to kick it to somebody else. And, you know, somewhere everybody's taxing upward, just like on The Sopranos. <laughs> the mob works the same way as this. And, you know, the, and we had like Tupperware brand Tupperware in my mom's house for a long time, at least in my youth. I don't think you could buy it anywhere but those Tupperware parties. I don't think they sold them in stores. Don't think you could. I don't remember exactly. Like if you, you, if you got more detail, I suppose I could go look up Tupperware on Wikipedia, but I'm not going to, but I really wonder um, about that line. Like, it seems like Tupperware cannot possibly be like that anymore because it is amazing to me. If you, if I go and I order carry out from a Chinese restaurant right now, the, the thing that my food will be in is just as good as the Tupperware 
that had all this special handling and all this like special distribution model to get. And you just get it, right? Some of your takeout boxes are flimsy, but the Chinese restaurant like down the street gives us stuff that is like we use this. This and also the lunch meat containers we get. Like you get like the sliced ham that you put on kids' sandwiches. That's what I use those uh containers to put uh, the kids' lunch in most days. They're disposable. Next time you buy ham, you'll get another one of these things. And uh, they're, they're just good enough that we can use them uh, I, interchangeably with the shit you pay money for. <laughs> it's kind of amazing to me that we've reached a point where the stuff that is literally just the packaging for other things is, in fact, as good as the product of my youth. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. That, that, that uh, occurred to me recently. It's like, wow, is, there, is Tupperware even a business? How could it? be a business has it morphed was it bought by rubbermaid and is that when you buy those little things in the grocery store or walmart is that what you're really buying is that the the dna the the legacy of tupperware i don't know also i'm going to speculate it about on the show i care enough about it to talk to you about it right now i do not care enough to look it up so that's where we're gonna be i'm gonna throw it out there and then that's it that's i'll probably stop thinking about it uh, again one of the things that uh, shows I've been listening to this weird show called Turned Out a Punk. This guy, uh, Damien Abraham, who's the lead singer for a Canadian punk band, I think punk metalish band called Fucked Up. Right away, you can tell uh, they pick in the commercial <laughs> band name. <laughs> and so he does a show where he does really nerdy. Uh, he's kind of like a punk archivist and record collector. Uh, so he knows a lot about all of these things and he talks to uh, various people. Um, and I've listened to some of the, like very recently, one of the shows I listened to was Duff McKagan. And that was a great show. I really enjoyed it. I'm talking like the ins and outs of Seattle punk. And I had no idea that Duff was in all these punk bands before he was in Guns N' Roses. I did. I did not. Um, I have not done a deep study <laughs> of Duff McKagan's discography. And, but it was interesting. And I, so sometimes there will be people you know, like Fred Armisen was in a punk band, and he talks a lot about that kind of stuff. And I've listened to various people. Some of them are deeper in, some of them are deeper out. But one of the things that has um, kind of emerged is that there's a, somewhere in there, there's a generational thing. As much as I give shit to the baby boomers, today we're the generation I'm throwing under the bus is my own. The Gen Xers, who uh, I believe I can feel as comfortable as I want to talking any bit of shit about this generation being right in there. I, you know, I was born in a year which puts me in the first couple. I'm on the front edge of Gen X. I will fist fight you if you say that I'm a baby boomer uh, because the line cannot possibly be that late. Uh, but I could be, depending on where you draw the line, I might be in the first few years of Gen X, but I'm absolutely Gen X. And, you know, so we're the people we came of age, you know, somewhere between the late 80s to late 90s, to kind of depending where you are in that cohort, at least the first half of Gen X. So, you know, most of us were, you know, most of us, all of us were somewhere between young adults and teenagers, uh, you know, in the grunge era. And more than anything else, that grunge era is just so maddening to me in that that's. I think really kind of the source of the whole Gen X uh, 
the hatred of success <laughs> is the thing about my generation that I bothers me more than anything else. The fact that the whole sellout business, the fact that uh, striving for something is so uncool and achieving it is fucking horrific. <laughs> You know, like the, the worst thing you can do is be the, the dog that catches the car, right? It, so God forbid you're assigned to a major label and God forbid you sell a lot of records and actually make money from this. Now you're awful. Now you're a shithead. I don't know. And one of the things uh, when I was listening to uh, 60 songs that define the 90s, define the 90s, explain the 90s. Um. The guy had done an episode on the song Doll Parts, and he um, apparently had enough astute observations. Somebody passed it on to Courtney Love, who said she really liked it and thought that he was incredibly uh, observant to figure some of the stuff out that nobody else talks about, you know, talks about her experience, what it must have been like. And he was pretty much dead on the money. So she said, I will come on your show as your guest talking about a song and I will talk about one of the Nirvana songs. So he did Smells Like Teen Spirit and she was on there and telling some of these stories. I don't know. I I think these stories are supposed to, I don't know what you're supposed to think when you hear them, but the story of when Smells Like Teen Spirit became a big hit, like became number one hit, the band is informed of this and Kurt Cobain, supposedly, this is what the story uh, Courtney Love told, may or may not be true. I think there's a certain amount of Yoko Ono-like mythologizing <laughs> of this. I think if the story is better than the truth, tell the story, which... I don't have a problem with either, but the idea that when he, they, they, he found out that he had the number one song, he cried because now he knew that he was for without a shadow of a doubt. He was a sellout. It's like, what the fuck? I mean, I am, I believe within like two months of his age. So we grew up with all the same stuff. Now I was not anywhere near uh, the Pacific Northwest, but this notion that you're awful for having achieved something I don't know where that comes from. I don't feel it. Um, you know, the quote that I want to have associated with me in the podcast world is the, there's no such thing as selling out to selling too cheap, right? The, the, I don't believe that that's the thing you need to fear is selling out. If you're doing shit you don't want to do and you're not getting much for it, that's ridiculous, right? If you're, if you're, if you're, throwing away your ideals for peanuts. Um, that's dumb. However, I also don't have a problem with you throwing away your ideals for uh, something that's meaningful to you. If you need a pile of money to, let's say, retire or something, you, know, you want to buy, you know, buy a studio. Maybe you want to buy a business and you need some money. And you do something that you don't really... I mean, actors do this, right? They take big budget movies that they may not give much of a shit about for the payday. And then they can pocket the money. And we don't think of actors uh, the same way, but if you do the same thing in other venues, I mean, the music world in particular, suddenly you're a hated despised figure. And I don't, I don't understand that. I don't like it. I don't, it's just, I find it annoying and frustrating that people can't just own that. Yes, I want this. <laughs> Like they have to obscure the motivations. They have to pussyfoot around the idea that they care. Like it's too, it's uncool to care. So you got to be above it all emotionally. You can't want anything. You can't try for anything. You can't achieve anything. Like all that shit can just go to hell. I don't agree with any of it. And then, so where the turned out a punk 
connection comes in is I don't even remember. I've heard similar stories from different people, but they talk about Gilman Street in Berkeley. Is it in Berkeley? Or in the Bay Area, right? This punk club that is kind of, to my mind, it's like the epicenter of, what's a good term for this? Of uh, scoldy punk, <laughs> like the scolding punk. You must do it exactly this way. You must defy authority exactly how we tell you or you're blackballed. Right. We, <laughs> it's so fucking weird to me. And, you know, Green Day were ki- as kids. That was their everything to them. It was Gilman. And then they become popular and they're blackballed. Like nobody wants them around. They think they're, you know, they, they think they're shithead sellout losers. And, uh, I'm pretty sure that in that give me something better book that, 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 um, What's his face? Billy, Billy Nicklehead uh, was talking about that. And, uh, you know, that kind of hurt him because these were this was his he thought it was his group. And now they want nothing to do with him because he had the audacity to uh, to be successful. <laughs> it's like, fuck that. We want to be art bum uh, broke hermits. We want to be punk uh, punk monks. <laughs> You've got to have this monastic, you know, uh, monastic devotion to the craft and assuredly never make anything from it. To some extent, Ian MacKay bears some of the the weight of this, right? The whole never charge more than $5 for a show and never sell T-shirts. And it's like, what the fuck? Also, uh, it helps if you have, you know, a record label, so you have streams of income that aren't your band. But that's not uh, that's not part of the Fugazi story, right? It's the, you know, that this is how they did business. And... I don't know, man. I don't, I'm not into, I'm not into canonization and codification and strict rules and all this stuff. It just has exactly that. Like, isn't, isn't the same thing that makes you want to be an individual and, and, and buck the trends and like, how is that, how does that requiring a lockstep of you fit in with the mental model of wanting to do something different? There was a little bit of this from the hippies. You gotta, uh, you gotta be a nonconformist, uh, and all your nonconformists are nonconforming in exactly the same way. Right? <laughs> this is not directly related, but only in the mindset uh, business of it, which is I don't know, like so so long ago that I was getting DVDs in the mail, and I got this lifestyle, this documentary. I think it was called Lifestyle or The Lifestyle about swingers. People who go to parties and they, you and your partner go and you kind of trade partners and you just hump whoever. And they were talking about how repressed um, everyone was and how they're different and they're free and they're kind of liberated. And then at some point, somewhere in this in this documentary, somebody says something about male to male contact. They went, "Oh no, we would not allow that. That's that's strictly prohibited. That's not a thing we would do. That's wrong." And I'm thinking, is this this, this is the same fucking guy who just said? How, uh, you know, normal Americans are prudes and, uh, you know, they're better than them because they have these open minds. I'm like, you don't have an open mind. You have a, you have one street on this map is open that's closed to other people, but you're still as closed off on all the other streets. So you're not, you know, it's the difference between being an atheist and believing in a God. The only difference is one God. You also don't believe in all the other gods. So you and me only differ on a single God and all the rest of them we agree don't exist. You know, it's a similar thing. I find it frustrating. And 
also on that 60 songs that explain the 90s, they were talking about the movie Reality Bites, probably, I think, on the Lisa Loeb episode. And and at the time, you know, when did that count? 95 or something like that, In kind of in the height of grunge. And you're supposed to look at this and you're supposed to root for the Ethan Hawke character who was in his band and and had no job and was like defiantly opposing the man and opposing the system and all the stuff. And Ben Stiller, the guy with a job who's trying to do right by Winona Ryder's character and get her films made. Uh, and he's, he's the bad guy. He's a dick. And he's like, if you, you, you grow up and you watch this movie, you will absolutely, <laughs> I have not rewatched it. I'm thinking about rewatching it just to see if I have the same experience. He said he watched it as a grown up, grown man with, you know, a job and kids. And he said, Oh, yeah, the guy that's supposed to be the villain is totally the hero, and the guy who's supposed to be the hero is a dick. <laughs> I just fucking hated this character. And uh, you know, that's that's I think I pro- I mean, I'm sure some of my opinions were different in, you know, 1992, but not wildly different. I don't know. I've never been an art bum. I've never been opposed to succeeding at stuff. I've never um I've never been one of those, oh, now somebody knows who this band is and I don't like them anymore. I don't, uh, I, I say never, I, I'm sure that happens, but if, when that happens, it's not the act of more people liking them. If you change to fit the audience and now you're doing stuff I'm not interested in, that to me is different as opposed to somebody who's doing exactly the same thing to a bigger audience, but you don't like them because they have the audience. That's not you, you know, that includes people greater than you and outside of your outside of your or original click that's it's uh, just absurd that's just absurd this i think this whole mindset is just so childish and then you know some of these people and that turned out a punk show like still have it to this day they're my age and they still have this outlook and i thought ugh. i mean it's entirely possible i will allow for um the possibility that i'm just a dick <laughs> and that I'm so in it that I've never noticed, you know, I'm corrupt up to my eyeballs so much so that I can't even notice how awful all this stuff is. I don't think that's how it is. I think these people are worrying about things that they don't have to worry about. Speaking, another side topic that tangentially, I think, touches my my main point. Grampy gets his home health care workers, which was a fight to get them in. They Their regular days are Mondays and Fridays. Monday and Friday this year included both, you know, Christmas Day was a Monday, New Year's Day was a Monday. They asked me, who do, when do you want somebody to come? And I say, and they said, it'll be time and a half on either of these holidays. I'm like, don't come Christmas Day, come New Year's Day. They said, done. So they do that. We tell Grandpa this multiple times. So this Monday, January 1st comes, and his regular person is on vacation. He gets a replacement from, from the agency. This is how this works. They show up. He wasn't expecting them. And he's so angry. He actually tells the person to leave. And I get a phone call from the agency saying he's yelling at the person telling, telling her to get out of the house. And we talk to him and we find out the root problem that he is experiencing. It's making him angry. So he was trying to cook some food and then the home health, uh, the home helper comes in and how is he supposed to accomplish that now? It's like, it made me so angry. It's like motherfucker, the home health care, your helper is help. So if that does not make anything in your life harder, having the helper there, 
he, we already are frustrated that uh, the helper is there to do whatever he needs. And he, like he, cooking him food or they'll even run and fetch him food. They'll they'll do his grocery shopping for him. And he never tells them to do any of that stuff for whatever weird reason. Because he, one of the things he told me is, they, oh, they won't do that. I'm like, that's fucking literally what you're paying them for, is to do that. It's like, you dumb shit. <laughs> it's frustrates the hell out of me. It's, But he got so angry. And I, and he's so angry over nothing. The thing that's bothering him was literally, literally, literally nothing. It was not a problem. It was never a problem. And he was, imagine a 90-year-old man, and he was screaming on the the phone to me. And I keep telling him, when you scream like this, I cannot understand one word you say. It sounds a lot like this. That's, I mean, you'll think I'm being goofy, but if I played you back a recording, it would sound almost like that. It's unintelligible gibberish by a guy who's, you know, screaming so hard his false teeth are falling out. So that, I, I feel like there's a little bit of a thematic consistency in being so upset, but I think that does not fucking matter at all. If you were or weren't upset about this, if you did anything about this, nothing changes ever. <laughs> Other than in your own mind, because now you're more virtuous because you're not a sellout. I think a, a long time ago, I talked about, I heard this weird interview with Co- the comic book artist, Colleen Duran. And she was talking about doing a period piece and how she might spend a day researching to make sure that the fork that an Irish immigrant would use in 1880 New York was correct. And uh, she's talking about that as if it's a virtuous thing. And I'm thinking, there's no way that is economical. (laughs) You should spend an entire day making sure you get something correct that five people in the world would know if it's correct or incorrect. And But she was pointing out basically how virtuous she was because she does that. And when you, part of the reason why you have to care about these things is because it doesn't make sense. You got to feel good about yourself for doing it because it's not going to pay you. It's not going to make anything, it's not going to make any meaningful difference. So you've got to be doing it for the sheer virtuosity high you get from being better than everybody else. That's the only thing. It's the only thing that's in it for anybody. Cause there ain't no nothing. There's no uh, incentive in the world, you'll make less money. Uh, you'll make things harder for yourself. And in the end, it was for literally nothing. <laughs> it's like, why? Why? So I'm just trying to, you know, like a, so, a pure, true subgenius, which I'm not, but I strive to be. I just want to surf the luck plane. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to uh, like avoid difficulty in life. But God damn it, if I'm going to sit and if I'm going to fight, it should be a meaningful fight. If I'm going to experience discomfort, if I'm going to get angry about something, if I'm going to feel an emotion, it better be something that fucking matters because I'm so tired of so many people being so worked up about shit that is either none of their business or doesn't matter in the world, right? (laughs) I just, I mean, that is kind of the defining uh, the defining, at least in America, and I see that it's similar in other places in the world. There's groups of people who have found an advantage in getting people angry about shit that does not matter one fucking bit. Because 
the anger is monetizable and the anger is allows control of populations. <sighs> I find that the more of this goes on, the less I give a shit. I mean, if anything, I'm erring on the side of not giving shit about things I should give a shit about. But I'm kind of, this is in a lot of ways disconnecting me from like everything. I just don't care. I'm just a retired guy in a house kind of in the country, uh, in a backwater place. And I just want to be left alone. And I just want to be, I just want most, you know, I just, I just want to survive. I just want to be happy. I just want to enjoy stuff. I just want my dog to not piss on the floor. I just, I just that's all I want. I just want to have, you know, enough food and heat in this house and uh, the ability to kiss my child and my dogs and my wife. That's all I want. What else? What else? What else is there? What else do you need? All right, my friends. Rant over. All right. I think I have exhausted that topic. But before we leave the show, let's not forget to do this. It is time once again for a thing we call the reading of the patrons. The following people went to bit.ly, bit.ly slash EGC Patreon, and pledged to support to keep the shambling mess shambling. Thank you to Derek Coward, Adam Rittenauer, Ken Kennedy, Paul Fisher, Arhuli, Robert Harvey, Paul Smith, Andrew Heron, Grant Bachoco, Tony Ewing, Craig Stepp, Paul Reynolds, Shannon Nelson, Charlotte Kennedy, Leah, the Enigmagic Angela Lee, Chuck Tomasi, Stuart Maxwell, Michael Butler, Bruce Lerner, Skeeter Murphy, Robert Gibson, Len Edgerly, Michael Street, Neil Forker, Dyko, Brian Springer, Rob Usden, John Gehring, Wayne Pittenger, Brian Jones, Joe Pollock, Jeff Dangle, J.P. Shippard, Steve Holden, Brian Hogan, Matt Beckwith, and patron in exile, Nutty Nukchas. Thank you, one and all, for supporting the shambling mess. And with that, let us kill the music. If you have any feedback on this or anything else, you can email me, dave at evilgeniuschronicles.org. You can go to that same webpage, evilgeniuschronicles.org, to the show notes. There will be links to stuff. These podcasts I mentioned, uh, uh, there's a couple books I mentioned. They'll, they should be in there. You go to Mastodon, you will find stuff at Mastodon. It's it's all out there. Uh, Mastodon. I'll talk about that in a future show. But I'm just, you know, just trying to survive. Survive with me. Survive and thrive with me. Can we all go out and do that? We can try. And as we do that, um, don't forget that I love you. Goodbye. Goodbye.